Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for every way in which you've blessed us, especially in Christ Jesus. I ask that you would turn our hearts and attitudes towards you in thanksgiving. Even now as we've come to this place with many different thoughts going through our heads and and attitudes of the heart, Holy Spirit, now turn us to you. May we remember your goodness and celebrate all the ways in which you have blessed us in the past, are blessing us now, and have promised to perfectly bless us in Christ, granting us every heavenly blessing through his perfect work, obedience, and sacrifice. Lord, we lift to you our, our corporate prayer this morning. For all those who are sick right now, we ask, Lord, that you would give them health, strength, and healing. We ask for those who are recovering from surgery this morning, that you would continue to knit them together, give them strength. Lord, we ask for every need, whether there are financial needs or relational needs, and anything in between, God, that you would be our provider, and we would look to you as our provider, and at the same time, you would teach your church to be your hands and feet. Give us opportunities to bless one another. Show us how to do this wisely in our context, we pray. Lord, I ask for the sanctification of this church. I pray that you would continue to convict us of sin. Discipline us gently, we pray. Show us how everything that is taking place in our lives is your mercy for us, that we would be disciplined, discipled, and transformed into your likeness. And I pray that we would show the fruit of your Spirit at work in us, in joy, peace, hope, and patience, and all the others. Do whatever you have to do in us and to us to help us to mature in the faith and grow to be like your Son in character. Drive us to obedience, we pray. For the glory of Jesus, amen. Once again, I'm going to do our reading this morning as we go through the sermon. These are long passages. This morning, we're looking at uh, chapter 44 and the first half of chapter 45 as one unit. And I mean, you just want to mark down on your page that I started preaching at quarter uh, two. Um, Just kidding, it's not quite there. Uh, As we return to Genesis this morning, we come to both the narrative climax and the theological climax of the Joseph account. Now, a gifted communicator probably would have found a way to build up the tension to these climactic scenes, but I've been just too excited about the implications of these uh, passages for the entire story. And so for over two months now, we've been looking at the Joseph narrative through the lens of these two major developments. The first is the radical transformation of Judah. The brother who Genesis 37, 27 came up with the plan to sell Joseph as a slave now here confesses his sin and substitutes himself to rescue a brother from slavery in an act of self-sacrificial love. This is the narrative climax of the longest story in Genesis. The brothers 
are changed by God's mercy and by Joseph's testing. The theological climax comes on the heels of Judah's sacrificial offer when Joseph can no longer control himself and weeps and embraces his brothers to console their fears that he might want to take revenge against them. He reassures them three times saying, chapter 44, verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And this will be stated most accurately later after the death of Jacob in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So this is the theological climax of the Joseph narrative. Now, the theme which ties the narrative and theological climax together is a very surprising one. Throughout Genesis, there has been a dominant theme, and it has been the sovereignty of God. Who really is God? Everything about God, His character, His nature, actually transforms us as we come to know Him. And so, of course, the Bible is about God. In Genesis, the dominant theme has been the sovereignty of God. He works all things according to His purpose, despite all opposition, even from among those He has chosen and created as a people for Himself. And this theme of sovereignty has matured and developed all through Genesis, from God's mighty power displayed in creation and creating a people for himself, to the God-given faith of Abraham, which unfailingly produces obedience in him. Now, at the climax of the final Genesis narrative, God's sovereignty is the basis for reconciliation within the family of faith. So this is a surprising new Uh, application of the sovereignty of God. It's because of God, who He is, that the family of faith can be reconciled. So Judah's confession and repentance and Joseph's forgiveness for his brothers are all rooted in this high theology. This this is the kind of stuff that gets me super excited, and hopefully I can get you excited as I preach for the next two hours on the... uh, way that this uh, lofty, high theology actually, uh, the the lofty heights of biblical doctrine here meets the nitty-gritty of interpersonal relationships in an intensely practical way. But before we come to this pragmatic application of formidable theology, the stage is set by one final test for Joseph's brothers in Genesis 44, verses 1 to 13. Now, Remember, this term test from the Bible comes from metallurgy, where a precious metal is both analyzed and purified by the intense heat in the crucible. The whole sense of the term means to test in order to determine the value of something, to burn off the dross so that only the riches remain. And so when God tests His people in the Scriptures, it's not set up as a pass-fail exam or a snare in their path that causes them to stumble. It is for their good to expose their sin for purification and to reveal the God-given treasure found beneath. As God tested the reality of Abraham's faith, finding obedience, Joseph tested the authenticity of his once hateful brother's conversion, bringing out Judah's confession and repentance. And see how this test works? The test puts them through trial, puts them into an intensity, and it burns off. It, it, It prunes them 
to use the word we used a lot in adult Sunday school this morning, prunes them uh, to the point that what's actually of value is, is left behind. And so for a second time in our narrative this morning, the brothers have filled their sacks with grain purchased from Egypt and are headed home when Joseph enacts his plan, chapter 44 of Genesis. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. He did as Joseph told him. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. Now, I'm going to pause there midway here. Part of the ruse that Joseph employs is the claim that he practices divination. And this has given a lot of people a bit of a trip up here in the story. Here, the steward is specifically directed to tell the brothers this detail. And in verse 15, Joseph again will remind them, do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Uh, Now, divination is... um, forbidden in Scripture. It's against God's law. It's, um, I'm not going to get into all the means that they would do this by, but he had a cup by which it would uh, be normal to practice divination. And, and, but this is actually a ploy used by Joseph to keep his brothers off balance and unable to guess why he has taken special interest in them and how he knows so much about them. And so it makes the brothers feel helpless in the presence of one who seems to supernaturally know everything about them. But even more importantly, it brings the brothers to the awareness that their sin is not hidden from God. And this contributes to their willingness to confess their sin to Joseph because he seems to see right through them already. So Joseph has tricked them, essentially. He already has knowledge of them because he's their brother, grew up with them. But now he's tricked them into thinking that he has supernatural powers to see what's happening. And he keeps on seeming to, right? He knows exactly what's happening all the time with them. He's set them off balance. This is all part of the test that Joseph has for his brothers. Uh, Let's continue again, verse 6. When he overtook them, this is the steward, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money we found in the mouth of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. We also will be my Lord's servants. He said... Let it be as you say, he who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Now, it is a unique feature in Egyptian law that both the accused and their accusers were allowed to propose their own punishment. Uh, Punishments for bearing false witness. So if someone was a witness, they could say, let it be unto me if what I say is not true. So they could take an oath, which would give a punishment where it should be shown or found that they were lying, also in the case of the crime. And so the one being accused of the crime could say, if I am guilty of this crime, let this happen to me. And this is... Uh, Both of these take 
place here. Now, taking a strong oath gives the impression that the witness was telling the truth. So if they say, let me be put to death if I'm not telling the truth, that's a strong oath that's saying, hey, look, I'm really absolutely telling you the truth. Uh, Or a strong oath would also uh, give the impression that the accused were certain of their innocence. Now, the brothers are about to have their sacks searched, so, and they don't know anything about the money or the cup, and so they take a strong oath, certain that they had not taken the item. The brothers propose that the one who is found with the silver cup should be put to death, and the rest of them would be all put, become slaves should it be found that they covered for the thief. In, in this, the brothers are strongly asserting their innocence, and then in verse 11, they quickly open their sacks to prove it. But Joseph's tricked them, and he's testing them, and the steward is working according to Joseph's agenda. So when they propose this, killing Benjamin and enslaving the brothers is not what Joseph wants. This doesn't serve his purpose. So the the steward initially agrees. He says, yeah, let it be as you say. And then he deliberately ignores what they've said or pretends to mishear them and then chooses to redefine what the punishment is. Do you see this here? So they say, let the one you find the cup, he's going to be dead and the rest of us will be slaves. And the steward's like, let it be as you say. The one who we find the cup, he'll be a slave and the rest of you will be let go. Exactly the way you put it. But this is, so he can have what Joseph wants. He's on Joseph's mission. And so he reinterprets the proposal to accomplish Joseph's plan that Benjamin would be enslaved while the others were free to go. This is all intentional. He's put the cup directly into Benjamin's sack. And then even afterwards, he kind of meddles with the legal system uh, by intentionally mishearing in order to get it to be exactly what Joseph wants. So you see this is all going according to plan. And so the brothers are given every possible reason and excuse to abandon Benjamin to slavery in order to free themselves. Another amazing thing about the test of God is that because its purpose is to glorify God by revealing God-given faith and transformation, they are often expressed in extremes to show the power of God is at work within the person's character. And so thus, Abraham is not called on by God to make a small sacrifice. Abraham is called on by God to sacrifice his unique son. There's no more extreme thing to ask for. If we had a story about Abraham offering a lot of money, we might be like, oh yeah, that's interesting. But when we see Abraham obey and offer his son, we're like, that's God. God's done something miraculous in this man. This is what takes place. And so, like Job, who's bereft of his entire family, fortune, and health, and yet does not curse God. The same is with Jesus, who in contrast with Adam and Eve, who ate forbidden fruit among a bountiful garden of fruits, Jesus is tested after 40 days of fasting in the wilderness and is hungry. And so extreme adversity or extreme enticements are common to God's testing because it reveals an inhuman power to obey, resist, and overcome by God's own Spirit. And so when in your life you see why is everything going wrong at the same time, You can praise God that He is doing a test which will purify you and reveal the God-given faith and obedience. So earlier the brothers had no vested interest in the destruction of Joseph. They had no need for the money they would receive for his sale. 
Only their hateful jealousy led to their crime against him. Now they have every reason to abandon Benjamin to the same fate. They have hungry families at home who will perish without the food that they carry in their sacks. Why should 11 brothers be enslaved and their entire families starve only to join this one brother in slavery? And so Joseph grants them not only the opportunity to repeat their sin in being rid of their father's favorite son, but ample excuse to make it reasonable. You see this? So in Joseph, they didn't have really major temptation to do this evil thing to Joseph. They just hated him. With Benjamin now, they have every reason. Like, even to care for their own families, they could say, pragmatically, we just got to let this guy go. But instead, they tore their clothes in grief, an act which they had earlier caused their father to commit over Joseph's apparent death. God is glorified through this reaction as it becomes clear that his discipline has done its work in these brothers. Now, follow along again in verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there. They fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, what deed is this you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. But he said, far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. From here out, Joseph will speak for the brothers. He's the, the newly emerged leader in Israel. Formerly, they were re referred to as the men. Always, every time it talks about the brothers, they're the men. Now, here they are, Judah and his brothers. Now, for the first time, Judah knowingly confesses the brothers' sin because, verse 16, God has found out the guilt of your servants. He's not referring to the stolen cup. He, they have just expressed their innocence of the stolen cup, and we know from the narrator that they didn't steal the cup. Of their accused crime, they're innocent, but the brothers have acknowledged, Genesis 42, 21, that there is a relationship between their distress and their crime. They realize that what is happening to them is according to the justice of God. He is their true judge. And so while Joseph, they, they say, he's judging us for something we didn't do, really this is God who knows our sin and is judging us for the crime we actually did in selling our brother. And so their public profession of this and acceptance of the verdict demonstrates their repentance. The seemingly supernatural knowledge of Joseph, his divination skills, uh, combined with the tests he has put them through, have convinced the brothers that God is also well aware of their sin, and that in His justice, the wrongs one does will be repaid some way, somehow, somewhere. And so, they immediately attribute this false accusation to what they had actually done. This is God punishing us. Now, thanks to God's severe mercies and gentle discipline, the brothers confess and show repentance. But the, the full extent of Judah's transformation is expressed in his following address, which we will read next. This is the longest speech in all of Genesis. 
The brothers know that they are deserving of whatever punishment Joseph requires, but Judah appeals to him to pardon Benjamin out of mercy for their father. Follow on verse 18. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, a child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he is alone, or he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one from me also, and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then, as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol." For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father." That's a long speech. It's the longest speech in Genesis. But Judah begins and ends his speech by referring to his father. It is the key word used 14 times in a speech which is designed to convey to the ruler the probable impact of his actions on the father that they have already put to grief. Now, part of the character transformation made evident through testing is that the brothers now have a new sensitivity to their father's feelings. Feelings they were careless of when they sold Joseph and presented his, their father with a bloody and torn robe. But after living for 22 years in the shadow of his grief, it has softened the brothers, and they are concerned to spare him further anguish. They've watched the destruction that their sin and deception has wrought in their family. Judah believes that the loss of Benjamin would kill his father, which is what Jacob had told him. And so he finishes his appeal by asking Joseph to allow him to fulfill his pledge and become the slave instead of the boy to spare his father misery. Now, this is the first instance of human substitution in Scripture, and it reveals a different Judah. Originally, there was the Judah who sold his brother into slavery. Now, this is a very different Judah. His self-sacrificing love for his brother for the sake of his father prefigures the substitutionary atonement of Christ, who by his voluntary sufferings reconciles God to those he has adopted for his own. 
the one who was once indifferent towards his father and so jealous of his brother that he sold him into slavery, now begs for his father's well-being and offers himself as a slave to save his father's now favorite child. Instead of being moved by jealousy to murder, Judah would now see his father's favoritism as the very reason that he would sacrifice himself for Benjamin. So because Jacob loves Benjamin, Judah will sacrifice himself. And so this transformation of the brothers represented in Judah is is far more miraculous than the transformation of Joseph's status in Egypt. The true power of God is made manifest in the confession, repentance, and transformation in the hearts of His people. Wicked sinners experiencing and then showing the love of Christ. So the ultimate miracle of the Joseph narrative is actually usually missed by the Sunday school lesson and the storybook Bible. It is not the dreams or the interpretation or even Joseph's massive promotion. It is the reconciliation that takes place among God's people according to His mighty work within them. We also see that healing the breach is possible only when there is one who is ready to take the suffering upon himself. This lesson was learned by Judah through God's severe mercies and gentle discipline working on his conscience. He learned by experience, first, the evil that results from hating a brother, and then to prevent such evil again, he would sacrifice himself for a brother. Jesus said, John 15, 13, that there is no greater love than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So this is This is an amazing moment where we see just how truly bad Judah is at the early part of the Joseph narrative. And then we see one who, like Christ, lays his life down. Upon seeing this kind of love at work in his brother, Joseph can maintain his cool demeanor no longer. Chapter 45, verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. This is now the third time that Joseph weeps. And each time he loses more control of his tender emotions towards his brothers. The calm and cold Egyptian facade uh, gives way to these emotional outbursts, uh, giving expression to his true identity with the elect family. Though Joseph entrusted himself to the dream and knows that God will faithfully bring it about, he does not entrust himself to his brothers until their repentance is evident. Once he knows that their hearts are changed, now Joseph is free to be his authentic self. Now it is the brothers who are unable to speak. They are terrified to find themselves in the hands of the one that they thought they had killed. Now, previously in Genesis 37:4, they could not speak peacefully to him because of hatred. Now they cannot speak out of fear. How could one who they had so hated fail to extract his vengeance now that he had them in the palm of his hand, so to speak? 
This brings us to the crux of our passage and the expression of the main theme of the entire Joseph narrative. Joseph can forgive because God is sovereign. Verse 4, so Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and the Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. So the brothers are in a place where their past puts them in grave danger. The wrath of their now powerful brother is imminent. And then the response of Joseph is not the expected one. Joseph's response is amazing, it's shocking. Don't be distressed or angry with yourselves. What? Like, if you've been following with the story, they've done some pretty bad things. And his, his answer to them is, well, I don't want you to be distressed or angry with yourselves. They already know and confessed their sin guilt. So Joseph instead directs their gaze away from their sin and on to God's grace. Away from the past and on to the promised future. Joseph's response is a total break with the past based on what God has revealed about the future. He now invites his brothers to put their pitiful past behind them to embrace a future that is caused by the past and yet somehow disconnected from it. And this new possibility does not come from anything that is done by the brothers but according to God's mercy and grace. So Joseph seeks to calm their fears by voicing the lofty theology that is the centerpiece of the Joseph story. God has sovereignly directed the sequence of events in order to accomplish His purpose. So he makes this main point three times in, in this formula of commission, God sent. Verse 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. In verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. In verse 8, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And so this is the key speech, as I said, in the entire Joseph narrative. He says it three times. You can't miss it. He repeats it again in chapter 50. What do we know about Joseph? This was the work of God. And so Joseph would not retaliate against his brothers, not because he knew they had changed, or not only because he knew they had changed, but because he had a proper understanding of how God had been working in his life. Joseph explains that the brothers had not acted independently of God's will. They were part of God's greater plan to bring Joseph to Egypt to deliver them. Yes, they were trying to get rid of their brother. But God overruled their counsels and attempts by doing by their hands what he himself had decreed. Thus, the act of sending Joseph to Egypt is attributed both to God and men, each for very different purposes. As Genesis 50, 20 says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And in this way, the, the main theme of the entire book of Genesis 
is now brought to bear against the problem of human freedom to choose? Will the choices of human beings interfere with the plans of sovereign God? The narrative insists that God is free and at work for His purposes in spite of, through, and against every human effort. God's will makes use of all human actions, but is domesticated or or limited by no human choice. The point of this story demolishes any notion that the Bible might somehow agree with the humanism that teaches that we are the ultimate authors of our own destiny. It also rebukes any kind of thinking that wants to clearly distinguish between God's work and human's work. Against such humanism, which separates God's work and ours, this narrative affirms that the arena of human choice is precisely where God's saving work is done. And so, what they do is given credit to God. This is shown in Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. And so when we work for sanctification, when we strive to obey, when we seek to know God better, who is doing that? Us and God. It is both. We are working. We are commanded to work. Who gets the credit? God, who is at work in you, both to will, because we can't even desire it without Him, and to to have the work to, to actually be able to do it. Two cautions. The announcement here that through evil purposes and sinful deeds, God has worked out His providential will is not designed to make us think more lightly of our sin or more highly of ourselves. The Apostle Paul predicts this rebellious thought when he expresses the wonders of the gospel of salvation by grace alone, Romans 6, 1. He then says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? God is able to bring good out of evil, using every human sin to accomplish His will, but that does not mean that sin is without cost. We've seen this repeatedly, uh, especially in the Jacob story, but all the fractured relationships of Jacob's family and the intense suffering it brought, causing Jacob to say at the end of his life, Genesis 47, 9, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. So we see a family that is distraught. We see a family in pain. We see a a, a family stricken and, and driven apart And this is all because of sin. Sin has a cost. But sin has not derailed God. Sin has not domesticated God and and made Him subject to our will. The second caution I want to give you this morning is that this disclosure of sovereign, gracious purpose of God for life does not lead to inactivity or abdication on the part of His people. Actually, Knowing God's sovereignty should lead us to decisive, obedient action. And so, immediately following his disclosure of God's sovereignty, Joseph responds by issuing commands to his brothers, 
both beginning and ending with hurry. This is the last part of our passage this morning. But before we read it, I want to even point you to Romans 9 and 10, where immediately after uh, Paul explains the sovereignty of God in salvation, he then says, but how will they know if no one preaches? And how will anyone preach if they don't go? And how will they go if we don't send? And so er the Bible is actually brilliantly written far by a far wiser mind than we can comprehend. And every time he really clearly shows us this picture of God's sovereignty, you know, Joseph saying three times, this was God, this was God, this was God, even in your evil deeds, always afterwards, it gives us also instruction. Obey. We have to do. It doesn't, knowing God's sovereignty should never say to us, oh, I don't have to pray then. Or, oh, I don't have to bear faithful witness. Oh, I don't have to, it doesn't matter if we obey or not, God's just going to do whatever he wants. That's, that's, fatalism. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible just says that you can't derail God, that you can't overpower Him with your will. The Bible doesn't say you don't have a will. The Bible just says your will isn't as powerful in transforming the universe as God. Okay, so immediately following, Joseph gives these instructions, beginning and ending with hurry, verse 9. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now you're I see in the eyes of my brother Benjamin, see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen, hurry and bring my father down here. So trust in God's sovereignty results in quick and careful obedience with the expectation of newness and transformation. And the chapter ends like this, verse 14, then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. And so the scene ends with Joseph and his brothers embracing and weeping and afterwards talking together. This is the final signal that the rift between the brothers has been bridged and intimacy has been achieved. Remember previously they could not speak to Joseph First because of hateful jealousy, then because of fear. You know, if you just read this out of context, you'd be like, and they talked to each other? But that's, it's really powerful because they couldn't talk to him because they hated him. Then they couldn't talk to him because they feared him. Now they can talk. Now they can speak to one another, reconciled as true brothers. Now they were alienated even before a 17-year separation. And as we continue in Genesis, we're going to see that it takes time for Joseph and his brothers to develop a trusting relationship. Even towards the end of Genesis, they're still like, once Jacob dies, they're like, are you going to kill us now? So they're not totally convinced, but it's going to take time for them to understand that they can actually trust one another. But they will have an eternity to enjoy the reconciliation to which God has brought them. In cohesion with the rest of Genesis, every episode in the Joseph story continues to demonstrate how God's purposes are ultimately fulfilled through, in spite of, even against human deeds, whether or not those deeds are morally right. 
One commentator wrote, and I paraphrase, uh, a God who can only work in categories of good would be very limited in our sinful world. God can do whatever He wants through for whatever people choose. However, the, the Joseph narrative applies the spiritual implications of that doctrine in a new and unique way. So it takes the, the lofty theology of the sovereignty of God and brings it to apply it to reconciliation within the family. It is this truth that allows for this amazing reconciliation between the estranged brothers who once hated each other, who once thought of killing each other, and they sold him as a slave. A reconciliation resulting from repentance and forgiveness. What's interesting is this then becomes a story about repentance and forgiveness, uh, but neither of these labels are used. Neither of these terms is found here explicitly, but this is for our benefit. Instead of just putting words that we might have our own interpretations for, instead we see a clear depiction of the reconciliation brought out between these brothers along with representative actions of true repentance and forgiveness in response to God's overwhelming control in all things. So it gives us a glimpse. We see a true reconciliation, right? At the end, they're speaking together, which was never possible before. And so there's true and clear representations of what it looks like to come to repentance and what it means to forgive and how forgiveness is possible. The sovereignty of God is made known to Joseph's brothers through testing, through his tricks, through even saying things like, don't you know I practice divination? They come to understand that God knows what's going on. If this guy knows, certainly our God knows what's happening. If we couldn't keep our sin a secret from this Egyptian ruler, how much more does God know exactly what we've done? And so they immediately start to interpret everything that happens to them in the sense of God disciplining them. It's amazing. How God uses Joseph to bring these brothers to recognize their sin would not go unnoticed or without divine discipline. Unconfessed sin had weighed upon the consciences of the brothers. Uh, Proverbs 28.13 says, Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The confession means to give God glory by acknowledging sin and God's right to punishment. Punishment, it is. Confession of sin in the Christian context is not just saying, yeah, I did that thing. Confession of sin is to say, that was sin. I'm a sinner, and I deserve God's wrath. That's, that's Christian confession. That's biblical confession. Confession without the acknowledgement of guilt and deserving of wrath is, is not true confession. Lots of people today will say, yeah, I did that thing, and I don't feel bad about it. And, and some people will say, well, I did that thing, and I feel bad about it. But, you know, just forgive me. Christian confession is, I've sinned. I'm a sinner, and I deserve God's wrath. As for the second requirement here in Proverbs, he who confesses and forsakes them, you notice it, it says, forsake that is to turn away from sin. And this is where sometimes we have a very weird understanding of the meaning of repentance. Repentance means to turn away. Forsake and repent are, are near synonyms. 
So where in Proverbs it says, he who confesses and forsakes sin will obtain mercy. Other passages might say, he who confesses and repents. Although I couldn't find one that said exactly that. But that's our general idea, confess and repent. But Proverbs says, confess and forsake, which means that repentance is not just saying you're sorry. Nowhere in the story does Judah say he's sorry. Instead, he leads his brothers in a demonstration of total renunciation of former sins. Instead of what they had done to a brother with really no reason, now they have every reason to harm Benjamin in the same way, and they don't because so utterly are they changed. They have forsaken former sins. There's no more moving example of true contrition and repentance than that of Judah's plea for Benjamin and his self-sacrificial offer to take his place as a slave. This is, to me, I mean, whenever I'm preaching a book of the Bible, it's always my favorite book of the Bible, but I just love this Joseph story. Everything falls short of true repentance, true thorough repentance, which does not prevent us from committing the sin anew. Repentance is more than just knowing we have sinned and that we wish to be sinners no longer. It is the process of God's Spirit at work in us to separate us from the desires which have repeatedly led us to sin. And this is a process that we see which has taken place in the brothers. And so we see how understanding that God knows everything and God is working all things to His purpose brings the brothers to confession and true repentance. Now, for Joseph, were he to have just an earthly perspective, this narrative could read like a nightmare, a, a series of outrageous offenses unjustly afflicted upon him. And so at this point where the brothers come to him, if this was a modern-day movie, he would then viciously kill them all, and then the credits would roll. But instead, he possesses a heavenly perspective. That God is working through all things to bring about what is good, Romans 8.28. And this enables him to extend forgiveness to his brothers rather than bitterness, blame, and revenge. And so the lofty theology of God's sovereignty in all things is the basis Joseph gives to assure his brothers that he seeks genuine reconciliation through forgiveness. See, this is what he says. Why can they know that he's serious about reconciliation? How can they know that they have nothing to fear? He says, look, God did this. God brought this about. And so he can forgive. When we think of a doctrine behind our ability to forgive as Christians, we probably usually think along the lines of the Matthew 18 parable of the unforgiving servant who was forgiven much and yet had no mercy on his fellow servant. And so we rightly say we forgive because we have been forgiven. That is certainly true. But that is not the reason that Joseph explains to his brothers. Joseph, it, it's amazing. We, in this story, he doesn't really do anything, not really, he doesn't do anything wrong in the story. He's just always shown to be this faithful and obedient and wise suffering servant, bringing about God's will for the brothers that need a transformation. And this, he, he foreshadows Jesus. And I'm reminded of also the way Jesus was able to forgive. Jesus forgave not because he'd been forgiven much. And so while we do forgive because we've been forgiven and we are commanded to forgive because we've been forgiven, there's actually a higher theology behind forgiveness 
that we are taught here in the Joseph narrative. This is deep stuff. I understand this is lofty, but understand that Jesus was able to forgive without ever being forgiven. Am I right? Joseph here also has nothing that he's been called out for by the narrator or by anyone. He doesn't have this major forgiveness moment. Why does he say he can forgive his brothers? Because God's sovereign. Because God has brought this all out. It it reminds me so much of Jesus. Uh, This way Joseph handles his brothers reminds me of Jesus in Matthew 26. Uh, I think I'm going to read 31 to 35. Uh, Matthew 26, 31 to 35. Jesus is about to go die, and he knows exactly what his disciples are going to do. Remember, Peter's like, I will not deny you. And Jesus is like, yeah, you're going to, three times before the rooster crows. Jesus knows exactly how they're going to sin against him. And it is as though he has already forgiven them. In Matthew 26, 31, it's one of, I think, one of the funniest passages in the whole Bible. Maybe I can't explain exactly why it tickles me so, but Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Jesus knows exactly what they're going to do. I love this because he says, essentially, when, after you've all scattered, after you've all left me, after I die by myself, let's meet up in Galilee. It's like, hey, but, you know, it's just like, and then we're all going to meet up afterwards. He knows exactly what they're going to do. But the prescience or the, the foreknowledge of God that he knows exactly how things are going to work out. Jesus has already forgiven these men that will be transformed. And by the second chapter of Acts, they are going to be bold brave testifiers for Jesus, sharing the good news of the gospel, and themselves being put to torture and death. Utterly transformed. You see how Joseph, he doesn't even know at the beginning whether his brothers have been transformed or not. But he does have the prescience, or he knows ahead of time that God is going to raise them up with him because of the dream. The dream says the brothers are going to be elevated with him, doesn't it? Joseph knows Because God is sovereign, and he knows that they're going to be transformed, Joseph can act as though they haven't even sinned against him. Even from the beginning, he doesn't take revenge. He puts them through tests to reveal whether their character has changed. It would be foolish for him to entrust himself to them if they hadn't been changed. We're not commanded by God to to just let everything go and pretend people hadn't hurt us or harmed us. We don't have to go back to our abuser if they haven't actually been utterly transformed. Joseph proves this. Right? He, he takes a lot of time in Scripture, a lot of, of page space is taken up in the Scriptures as Joseph is testing these brothers. Have they truly been transformed? Now he reveals himself. Now he puts himself back into intimate posture with these brothers. True reconciliation. Once again, they are brothers. These are the guys that tried to murder him. Jesus, the same thing, disciples who should have stood with him, and he knows they're going to abandon him. God has already, God already knows, but He also knows that there's going to be a transformation that takes place. Even God, the Bible says, when it's explaining why He is patient with sinners, 
It says that he'll be shown to be both just and the justifier of sinners. It'll be shown that he was just in being patient with horrible people like you and me because he knows what the outcome is going to look like. God is actually, do you know the Bible says God is justified by your righteous works, church? He was patient with you, gracious with you, merciful with you. And that would look really bad because a just ruler, how can they let someone off the hook? Well, he doesn't. He knows that he's going to transform you. He knows that you will start to walk in obedience because of his mercy and grace. So Jesus knows that his disciples are going to fail him. He knows that later they'll be transformed. Joseph actually knows because of the, the dream that his brothers are going to be saved with him. And so he just is waiting for the right time to embrace them, to reveal himself. God is both just and the justifier of sinners. He will be shown to be just because we are transformed like these brothers. So the principle I want to leave you with this morning is that whoever is spiritual, whoever is mature, whoever understands the character of God will perceive the hand of God in the course of all events. And therefore, we are able to forgive what others have done. We know if we believe God, we don't have to have a special dream, we don't have to have a prophecy, we don't need to be Jesus, to know that our brothers and sisters in Christ will be transformed and perfected. And so that other believer that has wronged you, that other believer that bothers you, that creates you the wrong way, that, that your spouse, your children, God will transform them. It's just a matter of time. And we also know that those who reject God and are not so transformed but continue in their evil will be judged by God. And what He has in store for them is so much worse than we could ever come up with. And so in both cases, we can entrust this to God. We don't walk in bitterness as believers. We don't take out revenge for ourselves. We don't let it destroy our lives and want to destroy the lives of others. Joseph can forgive these brothers who are murderers who sold him into slavery, and now he's like weeping and loving on them, kissing them, crying on them, and they begin to talk together because he trusts that the hand of God has brought out exactly what God has promised. As with confession and repentance, genuine forgiveness is made possible through the recognition of God's sovereignty. When we are wronged, if we can perceive things as God sees them and trust that they have been used as God has planned them, then forgiveness and reconciliation are possible. Anyone who bears a grudge or hopes to take revenge has not yet come to appreciate the meaning of the sovereignty of God. Let's pray. Father, these are, are lofty things beyond even possibly our, our ability to fully comprehend this morning. But I ask that your spirit would apply to us what we have learned in the scriptures. What is declared by you in what has been masterfully written for our good. It, it brings me to worship. To see the wonderful way in which you communicate your character and nature to us. It brings me to humility to see how the revelation of your nature transforms us. I pray, as I prayed at the beginning, that you would sanctify us. Sanctify us in your truth. 
Not knowledge, not details of, of things that are right and wrong, but your truth, who you are. What it means that you are God. Let that cause me to repent and confess, forsake sin. Let that knowledge of who you are cause me to be ready to forgive and to hold no bitterness and take no revenge. Transform us in your truth, I pray, for the glory of Jesus and for our good. Amen.